There we go. It's recording. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we can gather like this. We thank you for the technology that makes this possible. Uh, Lord, and we just pray tonight that as we talk about your word, that we would know you in a deeper way and be better equipped to help others know you in a deeper way. For Jesus' sake, and in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, this term we're going to be looking at the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. Um, When I say Ecclesiastes, what's the first thing that comes to mind for anyone? Meaningless. Meaningless. (laughs) Meaningless. So what are we doing studying it? That's right. Meaningless. Anything else that kind of comes to mind? Chasing the wind. Chasing the wind. That's right. Chasing the wind. Yep. There you go. Is it Hakmal? Is that what it's called? Uh, No, it's it's Hevel. Hevel. Yes. Bible we'll, project. They use the word. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll get to that. That'll, yeah, so keep keep cool. that one in mind. Yeah, the the Bible project video was was really good. It's worth um, worth having a look mm. at that overview video. Mm. Yeah. Um, any any fans of late sixties psychedelic rock? No, uh, you know, time, uh, there is a uh, time for everything under heaven. Uh, the birds turn, turn, turn. I think it was in the Forest Gump soundtrack. Um, yeah, I remember that. There you go, Karen. Good on you. Apparently, <laughs> the song in popular music, the highest charting song with the oldest lyrics in in known history, because the lyrics come from 3,000 years ago. So there you go. Bit of useless information for you. <laughs> Use that for the next pub trivia night. Great. So we've got we've got some sort of background to. Uh, to Ecclesiastes, you know, things come out, you know, like we've said, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, or vanity, or, um, you know, we've talked about the chasing after the wind, that's that phrase that keeps coming up, Um, that famous passage in chapter 3, that the birds turn into a song, to everything there is a season. Um, It's a well-known book, but at the same time, it's a really not-so-well-known book, because there's a lot of weird stuff in there. We'll talk a little bit tonight about the bigger picture of, of what wisdom literature is. Um, and then we'll also talk a bit about Ecclesiastes itself and uh, how, to, how to go about teaching it. Things to notice as we start teaching it. Hi, Megan. Welcome. <laughs> uh, things to notice as you teach it. Things to look out for, maybe. And, and where to kind of put it in terms of how the gospel uh, connects with what's going on in Ecclesiastes. So I hope you've got a, the handout in front of you. It's okay if you don't. Um, but we'll run through just some summary information about Ecclesiastes to kind of put it in context where it is in the Bible and what we're talking about. So um, when we talk about the date of Ecclesiastes, that's a really difficult one. A lot of the wisdom literature is really hard to date. Um, So estimates are anything between the 3rd century BC and the 10th century BC. When we say 10th century, that's around the time of Solomon himself. Uh, third century and moving on till that end of things is after the Babylonian captivity. Um, and you might not realize this, but a lot of what we know as the Old Testament and the way it's compiled and put together is actually, it was actually done during the Babylonian captivity. There was a lot of work that was done by the exiled Israelites to put their, uh, their literary heritage into an ordered form. So a lot of what we have in the Old Testament was actually done in Babylon. So it might be as late as that. It might be as early as Solomon. We actually just don't know. There's nothing in the book to tell us when it was actually written. Uh, In terms of the author, um, Solomon could be a candidate. Uh, It does say 
in chapter 1, verse 12, uh, talks about the preacher having been king over Israel in Jerusalem. 1, verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Could it be Solomon? Well, a lot of the wisdom literature is tied to Solomon. It's possible. Um, there's some suggestions that it's a later author who's kind of writing in a Solomonic tradition. Um, but it's also worth knowing that the writer or the, the, the wise man, the preacher, isn't the only voice we have in the book because there does seem to be a narrator or a, a compiler who's, uh, who's writing at the beginning and the end and kind of giving us context for the book. So the author, we don't know. Tradition says Solomon. I think it, it probably is Solomon, to be fair. Um, context. Again, we don't know when it was written. We don't know what was going on in the life of God's people at the time it was written. But we do know that this comes as part of what we call the canon of Old Testament wisdom literature. And so this is also the genre of the Bible passage or the Bible book that we're talking about at the moment. Um, You'll be familiar with genres like narrative, which talk about, you know, things that happened um, or poetry, things like the Psalms. This is what's called wisdom literature. Um, and it's all this stuff that is based around looking at how God's world works and making deductions about that. So we have four wisdom books in the Old Testament. You've got Job, uh, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, and of course, Proverbs, which is probably the most well-known wisdom book. There's some wisdom Psalms as well. There's some wisdom passages in other books, but all of these together constitute what's called the wisdom literature of the Bible of the Old Testament. And, you know, like we said, a lot of the wisdom literature comes back to King Solomon. A lot of it is, is written in the kind of tradition of King Solomon. Uh, and the reason for that, obviously, is that Solomon was the original wise guy. So we remember from 1 Kings, uh, Solomon comes to the throne. And God asks him in a dream one night, well, what's, what's anything I can give you? Uh, and, you know, Solomon's got the option of choosing, well, he wants wealth or he wants power. Solomon chooses wisdom. And I'd just like to read to you from that section of 1 Kings chapter 3 so you can hear what Solomon did. So it says that, and this is 1 Kings chapter 3 verse 5, and it says that Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you've shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart towards you. You've kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne to this day. And now, O Lord my God, you've made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I'm but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you've chosen. A great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. Who is able to govern this great people? And of course, then God says to him, well, because you've asked for this, I will give you that. I'm also going to give you all the stuff you didn't ask for as well. Long life, power, wealth, all those other things. But it does tell us later that there is there was no one like Solomon in wisdom. Um, so the very next story in 1 Kings is the story about the two women with a baby. Um, both of them claiming that that the living child was theirs and that the dead baby belonged to the other woman. And Solomon said, right, we'll grab a sword, we'll cut him in half and we'll give each baby or give each half to one of the women. And of course, the real mother says, no, don't kill him. The other one can have him. And it says that everyone in Israel hears about this judgment 
Um, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. That's at the end of chapter 3. End of chapter 4, we kind of get a bit of a summary of Solomon's wisdom. And it's interesting the kind of things that the Bible notes here. Uh, it says that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all, and they, they list a whole bunch of other wise men in the surrounding uh, nations. And chapter 432, he also spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So it's, it's a fascinating thing that Solomon's wisdom encompasses all sorts of areas. It talks about zoology it talks about botany it talks about music and the arts it talks about justice and right order of society uh it's there's there's an element there where he understands people um and so we often tie all of this wisdom tradition in the old testament back to solomon because when it comes to wisdom there's really no one like solomon in the whole bible which begs the question then everything we've spoken about so far i'm going to throw this question open then what is wisdom you had to define what wisdom is what would you what would you say is wisdom especially according to the bible i guess it's dealing with a situation with thought behind it or mm -hmm. giving certain advice to someone um that could be from your own experience or you think could be helpful to the situation. Um, yeah, wisdom from experience, I guess. Wisdom from experience, yeah, sure. So experience yeah. allowing you to make choices and decisions about situations, yeah. Any other ideas? Perhaps it's a wise application of knowledge. Wise application of knowledge, yeah. <laughs> because it's, uh, it's one thing to know a tomato is a fruit, it's another thing to put it in a fruit salad. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say something similar, like it's um, God, godly knowledge, um, thoughtfully applied or considerately applied. Hmm. Godly knowledge, considerately applied. I like that. Well, the Bible says wisdom is, the, you know, the knowledge of God. But if we look at what it's saying about Solomon here is he has not only that because I suppose he asked for wisdom, mm -hmm. knowing that God was able to give him that, mm. but also that he had all of this worldly knowledge as well, mm. you know, as you said, the biology, the zoology and all the rest of it, and an understanding of humans as well mm. to be able to play, you know, the two women with the babies to know what reaction he'd get from a genuine person. So, yeah, it's a big, big question. Mm. Yeah. I think what you said there is important, and it, it does show us that the wisdom is, it's bigger than just knowing God. Um, it's, and it's, it's in a very big way, the wisdom is tied to knowing God's world uh, in all its facets. Um, and so I think... Uh, um, it's not really a... Sorry, I'm just looking at my notes here. 
Um, so the, the wisdom thing means that we're able to look at God's world with understanding. Um, now, of course, there, there's a bit of gray here because that can lead to a knowledge of God. It doesn't necessarily lead to a knowledge of God. Uh, and it kind of stands different to the way God has revealed himself in his word. It's very much tied into how God's revealed himself in his world. Um, and gaining some sort of understanding about what the world is like under God. Uh, and of course, you can already see where this is going, because if, if we remove God from the equation, the wisdom is deficient. There's a lot that can be learned about God's world and the way it works without him in the picture. But there's something profoundly missing, which is why, obviously, as we're going to talk about on Sunday, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, actually seeing how he fits into that whole picture. Um, there's a helpful quote over the page um, from a very, very helpful book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. If, you've, if you haven't got a copy of that, I'd highly recommend it. Um, it goes through the big genres in the Bible. It also goes through the individual books in the Bible, things to notice. It's, it's a very good little resource. Um, and this is what they write. They say, Hebrew wisdom is a category of literature that is unfamiliar to most modern Christians. Though a significant portion of the Bible is devoted to wisdom writings, Christians sometimes either misunderstand or misapply this material, losing benefits that God intended for them. When properly understood and used, however, wisdom is a helpful resource for Christian living. But when misused, it can provide a basis for selfish, materialistic, short-sighted behavior, just the opposite of what God intended. I think that's helpful to kind of put us in the right frame of mind for answering this question of wisdom. So... Here's perhaps a way, to, uh, a definition of wisdom, a working, a working definition of wisdom. And I think it takes in a lot of the, the different things that have been mentioned so far. So what is wisdom? Let's call it a personal ability to make good choices in life based on what has been revealed of God's character and purpose in his word and especially in his world. So personal ability to make good choices in life based on what has been revealed of God's character and purpose in his word and in his world. Now, what's interesting when we go back in history and we start talking about wisdom outside of God's covenant people, um, it's not something that's, that's unique to ancient Israel. It's not something that's unique to Christian history either. Wisdom has been a pursuit of all sorts of nations, all sorts of cultures for you know, history and memorial. But a lot of what the ancients were looking for in the pursuit of wisdom is what was often called in, in various translations the good life. They wanted to figure out how to live well. And they did that by trying to study the world um, you know, study the way people are, study the way the animals work, you know, study the way the seasons work, all those sorts of things, trying to find how to live the good life. And of course, we can see now that we're talking about how to live the good life, obviously, but we're looking at how to live the good life under a sovereign creator. And that's, I think, what the difference is when we start talking about biblical wisdom. Um, and I think one of the reasons we struggle when we come to the wisdom literature is because it's not always black and white. Uh, and that's something important as we work through Ecclesiastes, is we're going to find things that aren't true or false. We're going to find things that aren't right or wrong, necessarily. Um, because the world doesn't work like that. The world is just messy, and there's lots of loose ends that just don't get tied up. Um, 
of course, godly wisdom does lead to truth. It does lead to doing the right thing rather than the wrong thing. But a phrase that we're going to keep seeing coming up in Ecclesiastes is, is better this than that, rather than this is right and this is wrong. So, you know, it's, it's better to go to bed early and get a good night's sleep than stay up all night and finish your assignment. Um, it's not wrong to do that. You'll still hand in the assignment, but it's probably better if you, um, you know, started earlier and got a good night's sleep. It's that, it's that kind of thing. Um, this is one of the reasons why it can be tricky because it's, it just leaves loose ends. You know, it doesn't always line up for us. Another reason I think we struggle sometimes is that our discipleship is very often future orientated and the wisdom literature is very much about the present. So we look at Jesus' words, we look at God's laws and things and think, right, I, I keep that stuff now so that when I die, when Jesus comes back, I can go to heaven then. Wisdom does lead us there, I think. Biblical wisdom does lead us there. But it's fundamentally, you know, it's fundamentally about what's going on right now in our lives. How to live a good life now under God. Um, and so this is one of the reasons why Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount by saying it's wise to listen to my words. You know, this is the whole thing, you know, the, the person who hears my words and does them is like the wise man who built his house on a rock. Um, because it's fundamentally about living a godly life now. So two reasons why we might struggle with wisdom literature. The one is it's not always black and white. The other is it's, it's very presently orientated rather than looking towards the future and where we will end up. But wisdom is good for us. Um, wisdom is good for us in how we follow God. It's, it's good for us in living the best life under God. And I think that's something important for us to maybe realize as Christians, is that biblical wisdom helps us live the best life now. You know, there's, there's a whole church movement around living your best life now. Um, but we're actually talking about doing that when we come to wisdom literature in the Bible, what it means to actually live our best life now. Um, and, you know, if it's good for us now, if wisdom teaches how to live the best life now, it's actually good for the gospel as well in the way we share the gospel. And I think this is a really important thing now. Often when we um, want to share the gospel with someone, we, we come across and we want to share with them the facts of the gospel. Uh, we want to tell them, you know, who Jesus was, who God is, what sin is, who man is, what decisions we have to make around this sort of thing. Um, we might want to present a good argument or historical facts. Wisdom is actually a really helpful way into the gospel because it doesn't just show that the gospel's true, but it actually shows the gospel's good. Um, and so I've got a little quote from Sam Chan in his book, Evangelism in a Skeptical World, where he's, he pushes this quite strongly. Um, talking about the book of Proverbs, he says, if the book of Proverbs is right, then Christians have a way of life that works. And I think that's a really important phrase to keep in mind. Wisdom literature gives us a, frame, a, a way of life that works. Um, and so the Bible isn't just true, but it also works. He says, so by being faithful spouses who don't cheat... Christians have happy family lives. By being peacemakers, Christians resolve conflicts. By being loyal, Christians have rich networks of friends. They are happier, more fulfilled, more trusted, and more respected. And if this analysis is correct, then wisdom can be a great entry point for the gospel. So there's something to think about as well when we talk about this category of wisdom. Uh, it's got huge implications for how we share the gospel and asks us, you know, are we actually showing people that you know, living for Christ is actually not just the right way to live, but it's actually the best way to live. Something to think about. 
Now, of course, the gospel is wisdom. Um, so we've already said Jesus' words, Matthew 7. He finishes the Sermon on the Mount by saying that the wise man who listens to my words and does them is like the guy who builds his house on the rock. And he uses that word wisdom specifically. Um, you think about the whole of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, where Paul talks about how the wisdom of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And this is where we really do start to move out of the category of maybe what we could call general wisdom into gospel wisdom, because there's a lot of stuff that can be understood by anyone looking at the world. Scientists do it every day, looking at the world and discerning wisdom. And, you know, it's been said, all truth is God's truth. All wisdom is God's wisdom as well. Um, you know, you can learn things about the way plants work or the way the weather works or the way people are without understanding the gospel necessarily. But what the gospel shows us is that there's a departure point between what is worldly wisdom and what is godly wisdom. Because worldly wisdom says, no, you don't follow the guy who gets executed on a Roman cross for something he didn't do. Um, godly wisdom says, actually, you do, because he's God's perfect sacrifice. And that's what Paul kind of covers in 1 and 2, uh, chapters 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians. And of course, in Colossians, uh, the book we've just been studying, there's a whole lot about wisdom in Colossians. Uh, it talks about, I'll just flick over there, just take a few few references. It's one of the New Testament books where the idea of wisdom comes up all over the place. So chapter 1, verse 9, uh, Paul's concerned that we'll be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Uh, 1, verse 28, uh, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Uh, chapter 2, verse 3, uh, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, 2 verse 23. Uh, no, the wrong one. 3.16. We talked about, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. Uh, chapter 4 verse 5. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. You know, following Jesus, the gospel, it's, it's a profoundly wisdom thing as well. It's not just a truth thing. Or a, a right, a righteousness thing. It's also a wisdom thing. Any questions so far? Um, we're kind of taking a big plunge into wisdom. Ben, yes. Um, so, talking about the gospel wisdom and then the wisdom, well, like sort of worldly wisdom and the wisdom literature. Mm. Um, uh, the wisdom literature, like the Old Testament stuff, are they are they like light on gospel type wisdom? Mm. I, I, they actually are, yeah, which, which is one of the reasons why it's tricky to read. <clears throat> so, you know, what do you do when Solomon says something like, you know, um, it's better to live on the corner of your roof than in the house with a nagging wife? <laughs> it's not a particularly <laughs> gospel idea. Um, you know, and, and what do you do with that? Well, is, is it true? Uh, I don't know if it's a right or wrong thing, but it certainly might be more comfortable up there than in the house. Um observational wisdom yeah yeah i was just yeah because mm. I'm, I'm not that familiar i don't think i've like read through all the proverbs actually mm. um but you know the ones that i've like can bring to mind or have recollection of impressions mm. of is that yeah it does seem to be light on that context and similarly ecclesiastes feels like i think again from like the wisdom literature it just feels like not quite complete yeah, and I think that's really important. Yeah. yeah. 
So this is why when it comes to wisdom literature, actually having a biblical theological framework is really important because if you just stop with the wisdom literature, you're stuck. Um, You know, so it's interesting that Solomon begins Proverbs by saying that, you know, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then he goes and talks about, you know, all sorts of weird stuff about the way ants work and stuff. And, but it's, it's about having that perspective and going, right, this is how God's world works. Um, God's world, the side of the fall, um, you know, seeing it in that, that tapestry of, of how the world works. Um, it is a tricky thing. We're not going to look at Proverbs much this term at all because it's, uh, Proverbs is another kettle of fish entirely. Um, maybe one day. Um, but what, what, what I'll do is towards the end of this part, we'll talk a little bit about some of the um, some of the dangers we can avoid when we come to read the Old Testament wisdom literature, the ways we can read it wrong and actually not, not go where it, the Bible is leading us in that regard. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It is light on gospel. Right. So where are we? Oh, let's let's go straight there. I think it's a useful place to go right there to where to um, what I was mentioning to Ben now. So how how is wisdom misused or misapplied? Here's three ways that you can misuse or misapply Old Testament uh, wisdom literature. Number one is by taking it out of context, and by taking it out of context, um, <clears throat> I mean just removing those little nuggets out and saying, right, well, that's, that can stand alone. It's very tempting to do that with Proverbs um, because some of these ones do look like they stand alone. But if you look at it carefully, Proverbs actually has a, a shape and there is actually stuff going on there in Proverbs. Um, and so just an example of this is that you'll find in Proverbs that there are some Proverbs that are contradicted a few chapters later. Exactly the same thing said, you know, the opposite. Um, and so if you just pull out the one without reference to the other, you've missed something. Whereas actually what the guy's trying to say is, you know, both are true at the same time. And well, what can we know about the world is that, well, the world sometimes works like this. Other times it works like this. Um, we need something else to, to hold on to, to give us a kind of, um, to give us a, a, a stable course through everything. So careful of taking wisdom out of context. Um, also, we can, we can fail to misunderstand the categories and concepts of wisdom literature. Um, and that's a bit of what, what we talked about earlier. We're not talking about law. We're not talking about right and wrong, necessarily. We're not talking about truth and falsehood, necessarily. Uh, we're talking, a, a lot of it is about what is better and what is worse. Um, so we've got to be careful of making it say things that it's not saying. Um, and then thirdly, by you know, closely related to context, is we can misunderstand and misuse wisdom literature when we fail to follow the arguments of the writer. Um, and so this is like what I was saying. There's a shape to the book of Proverbs. There's a shape to the book of Job. Uh, there's a shape to Ecclesiastes, shape to Song of Songs. And we've actually got to discern that shape and see what's, what's the author trying to do when we step back from the whole book. Um, it'll help us to read the whole thing properly. All right, so that's that's a very very brief flyover wisdom literature. Um, it's a complicated genre in the Bible to get your head around. I don't think Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Job, or Proverbs are easy books by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but if we can keep this in mind, that what we're talking about is the best life under God, or ways to live wisely in God's world under Him, uh, that'll help us to orientate ourselves and to keep keep uh, keep ourselves on the right track. Okay.
Are we happy to move on to Ecclesiastes itself? All right. Great. Let's let's move on to Ecclesiastes itself, and hopefully this will take some of the things we've spoken about and ground them in an actual part of the Bible. A oh, quick question. Yes, Ben. Uh, why are we doing Ecclesiastes? Why are we doing Ecclesiastes? Um, God told me that it would... No, I'm kidding. Um, no, I, I thought, you know... It's an interesting book because it gives us perspective on life. Um, it's a perspective on life that's often messy. Um, and my, my original title for the, for the series was You Can't Have It All. And I thought we're in a, a season of life at the moment that, you know, we're, we wish we could have it all, but we really can't. Um, our world is kind of in that space at the moment. And I thought, you know, well, is, is that what God wants to say to us right now? You actually can't have it all. Um, there's, there's a lot of idealism that I think we hold. Uh, and Ecclesiastes kind of, you know, gives a torpedo to that sort of idealism and helps us to have perspective and redirect it. I thought it, you know, prayerfully thought that it would be a good thing for us to dive into and talk about meaning and purpose and all those sorts of things in a, in a different way than what we often do. Mm. Yep. Thanks. Cool. I want to say, as we've already said, though, it is a very confusing and difficult book to interpret. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff going on here. Um, and there's two schools of thought when it comes to Ecclesiastes. Uh, there's a school of thought that says that this is a pessimistic book. Um, it's a book that's cynically kind of showing us a life to avoid. Uh, when it talks about, you know, everyone dies in the end and nothing's meaningful. Uh, is that a cynical look at, you know, life that we must avoid or Another way of looking at it, is it actually an optimistic book showing a way to live even though all things have to eventually pass away? Um, I tend to take it as an optimistic book. I think it's a very realistic book, but I think it's, it actually has a note of optimism in it. Um, and I think you can see that when he talks frequently, he comes back to this theme of joy. He says, you know, at the end of the day, what have you got left but to fear God and enjoy what he's given you? And it's like, there's, there's very little more to to life than that um, when it comes to structure in the book the structure is also very very hard to determine um, you know so we, we won't be looking at the book sequentially uh, as we might have done with other books in the past uh, the, there are some structural markers that we can hold on to the one is the narrator's introduction chapter 1 verse 1 where he says, you know, these are the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. That's clearly not the guy who's, who's got the bulk of the, the words in the book. Um, chapter 1, verse 2 to 11 might also be the words of the narrator, but even there you can see it's not clear who's, who's speaking here. I think it's the narrator because he's talking about the preacher in the third person. So he says, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanity is always vanity, verse, uh, verse 2 of chapter 1. And it seems to be maybe that 1 to 11 is a summary, actually, of the entire book. Then from verse 12 of chapter 1, I think all the way through to chapter 12, verse 8, are the words of the teacher, or the preacher, depending on your Bible. And he... There's some evidence that there's a development of thought as he goes through, but it seems to be, you know, as he's, as he's moving on, he kind of starts talking about work, and then he starts moving on, talks about time, and then suddenly he's back and talking about work again. 
and then he kind of continues, talks a bit more about time, about life, and then he's, he's back talking about something that he spoke about previously. So it's really hard to kind of see any progression or clear structure in what he's talking about. Even if you find you know, all the places where he talks about striving after the wind uh, and try and use those as markers, it's an, it doesn't actually fall in an obvious place. Um, so, you know, stream of consciousness might be a way of describing it. But there does seem to be more thought behind it than just he's just writing whatever comes to mind. Um, so structurally hard to determine um, in all that middle section. At the very least, 9 to 14 of chapter 12, so the last five verses, that's clearly the narrator's conclusion again. Um, so he picks up the pen once more, and he says... Uh, where is it? 9 to 14... This is the bit where he says right at the end, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. You can see here it's already changed the third person past tense. Uh, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care, the preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads. Those are the, the sticks that they used to poke cows along with. Uh, and like nails firmly fixed to the collected sayings, they're given by one shepherd my son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Every, every student saying amen. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And the book kind of ends there. A bit of a, you know, end note, an epilogue by the, um, by the narrator. So in terms of structure, that's pretty much all we've got. So I'll explain later how we're going through the sermon series, but we'll actually try and look at the sermon series more thematically than according to, you know, this chunk of verses, that chunk of verses, that chunk of verses. Um, any questions about that or any observations? You're painting a great picture of how easy this is going to be in the group. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I know. We... I know. I I understand what's happening. <laughs> it's okay. You the rest of us. It's so okay. Don't worry. It's okay. It's all meaningless. Don't worry. <laughs> We're all in this together, Alicia. Yeah. yeah. I've never actually read anything from Ecclesiastes. So okay. All right. I've been opening it up and I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. Sure. A great advice is to try and read it through in one sitting. It's 12 chapters. It'll take you half an hour. It's worth kind of just sitting and just going through the whole thing because you'll, you'll hear things in the way that the book fits together going through it once that you won't by just pulling out bits and pieces uh, so I highly recommend that um, or even using an audio bible I, I use the um, the um, ESV UK oh no the NIV UK edition on Bible Gateway and they've got the guy who um, who does uh, Poirot the uh, spy series um, he the detective series he he reads it and I, I listened to the whole thing through that way a couple of times it was actually really helpful um, he mm. reads really well I want to if Instead of reading life as being meaningless or whatever the interpretation is, if you put transient, mm. it, it makes you see it as not a dismal and cynical book, mm. but it's more a book which is pointing to all the strange things in life that we really think about and think, mm. Why does that happen? What's the purpose? And I think in that way, um, it isn't such a miserable book at all. 
Exactly. I think you're absolutely right, Gene. And this, the, the two very important words that come up in Ecclesiastes, and, and that is one of them, that, that word, it's often translated as meaningless in some translations, or vanity um, in the ESV. Um, I, I don't think that either of those is a fair translation. It might be correct, but it, it's too narrow. It's too simplistic for what is actually being spoken of. So the word in Hebrew is literally breath. Um, and, you know, or, or vapor, um, that's sometimes used as well. And, you know, it's it's not that it's meaningless, because I don't think you can say that breath is meaningless in that way, or vain. But there's an element there where it's it's fleeting. Um, you know, it, it doesn't last. Um, it's also really hard to grab onto. You know, if you exhale, you know, you, you can't kind of grab it. Um, so, so trying to build something on it is probably a mistake. Um, and maybe that's more what he's getting at here. I certainly think that's what he's getting at here is all these things that are breath are actually the things that we try and force meaning and purpose out of, but they're incapable of giving that meaning and purpose. So things like work, uh, things like pleasure and possessions, things like wealth, things like status and reputation and influence um, or even relationships or time, you know, kind of living life with a remote control as though, you know, this moment in time can give me meaning. And he's saying, no, no, all, all those things are breath. They're there, but they're there one minute, gone the next. So be careful about how much you try and hold on to them. And I think that's really what's going on with this idea of, of, of breath. Or he, the Hebrew word is hevel. Um, it just... It's it, it's hard to grab onto. You know it's there, but it's it's not there long enough, and it doesn't have as much substance that you can really grab onto it. He uses that word thirty-seven times in the twelve chapters, so it's an important one. Another important Hebrew word is the one that's translated for us as the preacher or the teacher. Um, that is the word, the Hebrew word kohelet, um, with a Q. Interestingly. And that word actually means the gatherer. So, you know, the, the preacher can be a good one. He's, he's the one who assembles, often assembles people. Um, so in, in a funny way, this, this book is quite a church book. Um, he's the one who's gathering the people to hear this wisdom. Um, and so that's why the book is called Ecclesiastes, because Kohelet, or the gatherer in ancient Hebrew, becomes the one who gathers the ecclesia, the assembly in ancient Greek, and Ecclesia becomes Ecclesiastes the way we've received it. So he's the one who gathers the church, but he can also be the one who gathers sayings and gathers wisdom. So he's the gatherer or the collector or the convener is another way of thinking about him. But yep, pre preacher works as well. He's the one who proclaims to the gathered people. All right. I thought it'd be helpful there as well to... Um, give you a long list of mist. Um, mist is another way of translating this word breath. Um, and this comes from uh, a, a very helpful book called, a very helpful commentary, the Reformed Expository Commentary on Ecclesiastes by Douglas O'Donnell. Um, highly recommend that one as well. And he gives a list of things uh, that come up in Ecclesiastes that are described as breath. The, these things we try to grab onto and hold onto and find meaning and purpose in that are unable to provide that. So every effort is one that comes up there in, in chapter 1 and 2. Uh, any fruit of our labors, they're one minute gone the next. 
Pleasure, chapter two. Life comes up very often. The fact that this life can give us meaning. Uh, youth, youthfulness, uh, success, wealth, desire, frivolity or having fun, uh, popularity, injustice. We can find you know meaning in writing injustice or ridding the world of injustice. Um, all future events. And then finally in, in chapter 1, verse 2 and 12, verse 8, everything is meaningless <laughs> or everything is breath. Everything is there one minute, gone the next. Everything lacks enough substance to give us meaning. Um, which, yes, might still sound very pessimistic, but let's keep in mind um, a few things about the book because there are four realities, kind of, let's call these four pillars, which will help us to keep in mind that there is a way to have meaning and purpose in life without looking at all these fleeting things. The first thing is that God is the creator of everything and the source of all things. So even though a book like Ecclesiastes, yes, light on gospel, it's not light on God. And there's some very, very sober reflections of God that come up in Ecclesiastes. God is the creator of everything and he is the source of all things. So we find eight times across the whole book, he says, God has given, whether it's life or time or breath or wealth and pleasure and things to enjoy, all comes from God. God has given. He's the source of all things. Um, also, he's the creator. You know, Ecclesiastes is not just a secular book. It realizes that God is the creator of everything. So 12 verse 1, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. So that's one reality, remembering that God is the creator and source of everything. The second thing to keep in mind is that God's ways are rarely understandable by human beings. So this whole idea that even, even wisdom is one of those things that is ultimately is fleeting. Because even by wisdom, we can't completely figure out the sun. We can't completely figure out what God is doing just through our own wisdom. So God's ways are rarely completely understandable by human beings. Um, chapter 3, what gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So that's Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 9 to 11. Um, chapter 8, he says, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither night nor day do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However, excuse me, however much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Hi, good day, Brad. Thanks for joining us. So that's the second thing. God's ways are really understandable by human beings. That takes some of the pressure off, I think. I think it gives us some perspective as well on thinking that we can figure everything out. Uh, the reality is the way life works, the way God's created the world, we can't actually figure everything out. Um, the third thing is that the way we think things should be are really the way that they are. Um, because we think, you know, this is the whole thing, you know, if I ran the world, um, I would do things this way. But God is clearly not doing the, the things the way I wish he would do them. So chapter 2, verse 6, For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. 
And, you know, we want to say, no, no, the, the wise should get a better lot than the fool. And actually, no, that's not how it works. Um, and so he says, the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because of what is done under the sun. It was grievous to me for all his vanity and a striving after the wind. So the way we think things should be are really the way things are. And then fourthly and finally, this is the final thing to keep in mind as we look at Ecclesiastes, everyone dies in the end and faces judgment. <laughs> There's a sobering thought. So chapter 3, verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so die the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all his vanity. So everyone dies. Um, Ecclesiastes 11.9 Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. And 12.14 For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So... Four things to keep in mind as we study Ecclesiastes. God is the creator of everything, and he's the source of all things. His ways are really understandable by us. The way we think things should be are not the way that things often are, and in the end everyone dies and faces judgment. Um, and those, also, those points actually come from um, that book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, as well. So... Um, oh, and, and just a note, what's, what's really conspicuously absent from... Uh, the thinking of the preacher in Ecclesiastes is any resurrection hope. And I still have no idea why that's missing. Um, because in Job, you look at the wisdom of Job, and Job's got that wonderful passage that says, you know, whatever happens, I'm convinced that my eyes shall see my Redeemer in the flesh, even after I'm, I'm dead, I will see my Redeemer, and he shall stand upon the earth. There's that wonderful future resurrection hope. That doesn't seem to be here in Ecclesiastes. It doesn't mean he doesn't believe it. But certainly the perspective and the way he's looking at life doesn't account for that at this stage anyway. Any questions to that point? Yes, so Clint, mm. the only thing that might tie in there is he has death then judgment in mm. how he says it. So there is something yeah. after, mm. you know, that, uh, that that might be, although there isn't the hope that yeah. is written about in Job, mm. there is still that. Mm. Yeah. Don't you think that God has put eternity into man's heart? Mm. Speaking, perhaps, of um, future life? Yeah, that's, that's right. I think there's a hint of something um, that beyond. eternity is mm. a, it's a long, long and an ongoing event, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. But, but again, the, you know, he does say that, but the, the thing about Ecclesiastes is it's such a present book because the, mm. the point there, yes, it's true that he has put eternity in man's hearts, but the, what he's saying there is that God's actually made that a very frustrating thing because he's put eternity in our hearts, but we cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. Um, yeah. So, yeah, but, but you're right. There is that hint there that he does know that there's something beyond. Hmm. So, what is the aim of Ecclesiastes? Um, where are we going? This is where I think it's going. It's to show the fleeting nature of life, and therefore to live wisely in the fear of the Lord, 
in order to find purpose and meaning. I think that's that's kind of a encapsulated aim for Ecclesiastes. So, to show the fleeting nature of life, therefore to live wisely in the fear of the Lord in order to find purpose and meaning. So, it's a book for perspective. I think that's the big thing that Ecclesiastes gives us. <clears throat> and as we said earlier, you know, he, he deals with all these things that we try and find meaning and try and find purpose in. Um, even as Christians, you know, we try and pour ourselves into our work as though that's going to give us meaning and purpose. Um, but, you know, he has he's had all the resources to basically do a, a research study on whether or not work can actually provide meaning and purpose. And his conclusion is that no, it can't. So, you know, in a way that's helpful because it means we don't have to kill ourselves trying to, trying to solve that problem for ourselves. He's telling us, no, no, you can't find meaning and purpose in work. Um, the same thing in pleasure, in wealth, in possessions. You know, we turn ourselves inside out and, and spend ourselves as though these things are going to give us meaning and purpose. Um, but he says, no, I've tried it. I've been there. I've done that. I've got the T-shirt. Can't give you meaning and purpose. So what, what, what have you got to do with life? Well, enjoy what God has given you. Have perspective and live wisely under God. And that's kind of basically what the book is telling us to do now the way that i've looked at the sermon series um is i've taken that to be the main thrust of the book but i realize that if we leave it there it becomes very very depressing um and i've got one friend who said you know he, he could do seven weeks with his church in this before people really really started you know becoming quite depressed um so what I want to do each time or each each sermon is not just leave it there. I want to use the wisdom that Solomon gives to expose the fleeting nature of these things that we try and find purpose in. And we're going to look at age. You know, we can find purpose in being young. We can find purpose in being older, you know, or, or look at time and how we want to find purpose in time or wealth or possessions or any of these things. Expose their inability to provide purpose, but then make a connection to the New Testament. Because if we believe that the gospel has that wisdom for us that we, we looked at earlier, then the gospel is going to give us wisdom about where to put work, where to put relationships, where to put life, actually. Um, and so each week we're going to have some New Testament passage that connects to what we're talking about to give us that, that hope. So Ecclesiastes kind of becomes a springboard. Um, for talking about some of those things. So just to give you a little bit of a, a light at the end of the tunnel, we won't just uh, leave it at how purposeless life is. Um, we'll try and use this as a, and I, I think this is what Ecclesiastes does for us, but in a very Old Testament way as it drives us towards God um, and drives us towards the gospel. Yes, Brad. Um, I thought the summary of everything in Ecclesiastes in the last chapter um, have you talked about that? Yes, we have. Okay. Well, I yeah. thought that was about the only positive thing in the whole book. <laughs> yeah, sure. No, the, the narrator kind of finishes off there and does make a bit of a summary, but yes. Yeah. <clears throat> but yes, he does talk a lot about joy as well. Um, thankfully, through the book, he does tell us that we've got to enjoy what God gives us, um, but not, not try and make it make it provide purpose and meaning for us in a way that it's just incapable of doing. Yeah. Right. Is that helpful? 
does that help us kind of have a bit of direction as to where we're going? Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's, this is a hard book. Um, I'm finding it tricky to put together. I'm also finding it myself. I'm, I'm foggy after being stuck in bed for almost 10 days. Um, it's, it's hard work to kind of get under the skin of what's going on. But I think as we get going and we kind of see these things, we'll go, actually, yeah, he's right. Um, you know, when he talks about how, you know, at the end of the day, nothing we, we do is, is new or even um, is, is really matters, you know, in the big scheme of things, um, all those sorts of things that he says. But good reason then to come to, um, come to the gospel, come to the cross for those things and go, right, well, that's where our purpose and meaning is. Um, and, oh, what's, what's that old rhyme? Um, just one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I think that's, there's a bit of truth in that when it comes to Ecclesiastes, and we see it in the context of the whole Bible. Yeah. And the whole thing is taking it back to what you started with, Clint, mm. um, about where uh, earthly wisdom is and gospel wisdom. Yeah. Because if those things are the be-all and end-all, we're only in earthly wisdom. If exactly. we understand biology but not who gave it to us mm. or who made it or for what purpose, mm. then then it is. It becomes all of that downness yep. that gets to the end of life. Mm. But we have that. Um, so, yeah, so that's the whole thing really, isn't it? Tying exactly. the two wisdoms and working out that one without the giver of it mm. gives you nothing. That's right. That's right. So, you know, he doesn't deal with biology, but, but in, in Ecclesiastes at least, but that's a great example because, you know, the wisdom of the world looks at biology apart from a creator and tries mm. to find meaning and purpose and identity in biology. You know, it's, it's the source of a whole lot of issues that are currently being talked about in our world. Um, Except gender. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's part of, part of that. And so put God back into the picture... Um, over the biology that he has designed and he has made. Well, there's a whole lot more wisdom to be found and, you know, we're not going to try and put purpose and meaning, ascribe purpose and meaning to things that aren't meant to give that that sort of thing. Yeah. How would, how would you explain mm. um, the phrase that he says a lot, there's nothing new under the sun? Because, you know, when you think about that in a literal sense, it does, like, I struggle to understand that. But then in a general sense, it's like, yeah, okay, well, yeah, everything comes around, uh, everything's happened sort of, but then in a specific sense, it's like there are still always new inventions or, you know, mm. something like that. So how would you, yeah, explain that phrase mm. biblically? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, the, I think the whole thing, like, like you're saying, in a general sense, that's very true. Um, mm. You know, and I think innovation, oh, Solomon was an innovator. Um, we read elsewhere in, in the Old Testament about the things that he designed and built. Um, and some of the other Old Testament kings were as well. They were innovators in, in warfare and innovators in, um, uh, you know, building aqueducts and that sort of thing. And even they were willing to say, look, there's actually nothing new under the sun because they're looking at things like we've always been able to take water from one place to another. All, all we're doing is just making it faster or more, more efficient. But there's nothing new in that sense of, you know, going from one place to the other. You know, sure, we've got electronic tablets now instead of stone tablets. But um, at the end of the day, it's still a thing that we read off. Um, so there's nothing really new under the sun. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, it does. Like a more general sort of yeah. look at it, the way you're brainstorming it. Yeah, no, cool. Mm. 
Yeah. I think it's a way of looking at it. I think like um, it's, it's probably in the sense of all the areas that he's focusing on, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Of, of their, like our desires and things that we seek mm-hmm. after, things that we hope or put our hope in or work for. There's nothing new, no matter the, the social context, the technological context, the resource context. Yeah. It's all the same. Like everyone still strive for the same things now, like all our friends and ourselves as well. You know, we mm-hmm. like whether it's pleasure, like our work, success, wealth, uh, popularity and justice, all these things that we pursue, mm. um, our, all those motivations are, and the directions we're, we're pulled or, or were sold to believe that we need to go, um, it's all the same in, in his day and in our day as well. There's nothing new in that in that sense. Mm. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I had a friend who wanted to uh, start a band at one point. He was going to call it Nuts with two N's, nothing new under the sun. <laughs> yeah. yeah but the, the the new things you were referring to um jackson was more for like scientific advancements and stuff is probably what you're thinking about i guess and the whole nature of the bible is is talking about relationships between people and um how we interact with each other and it's not really a um i don't think you can really compare or on the scientific uh, things and even then, like you know, the gravity's always been there. The electron has always been the electron. It is all the same, and and you know, just the creation is there for us to discover. You know, it's uh, something that God's given us to look for. Mm. Uh, I, I, th- I think that's the point, actually, Brad. Is the uh, we spoke a bit earlier about how Solomon's wisdom stretched across all sorts of different disciplines. Um, mm. And even across all those areas of science and biology and zoology, he, he was still able to say, look, there's actually nothing new. And it's, I think it's the realization that the world is a, is a closed system, actually, in many ways. And there's nothing new that's come into it. We might discover something that we've never seen before, but there's nothing exactly. new. Exactly. That's always been there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So don't, don't think that you're special <laughs> in that way if you, you know. I found it a lot with, like, computers. Like, I've been in computers for... God, I don't want to even say it, 40, 50 years. <laughs> um, I, I did an electronics background and all that electronics stuff has just basically got smaller and faster. Yeah. And there's actually not been much that I can think of at all that has been truly yeah. innovative, you know. Exactly, yeah. Uh, if you've read about this new rocket that uh, Putin's been firing today, um, it's... You know, military analysts are saying it's not much different to the one that they were firing back in the 1970s. Um, just the components have gotten smaller. Um, you know, it's not more powerful or hasn't, hasn't got longer range. Nothing that might be a little bit more accurate, but it's about it, really. Um, yeah. nothing, nothing new under the sun, actually, when we look at it. And it's an um, adjusted path is what the V1 used to do. The <laughs> there you go. Zigzagging around. So, so the point there being... We, we've we've got to be careful of chasing newness as though that's going to give us some sort of purpose. Solomon is actually saying, look, there, there isn't anything new. There's nothing down that road. Um, so. It's rather like the Ten Commandments too. Mm. It sums up man's sinful heart. Yeah. And all of our sins tend to fall under those ten categories. Mm. That's, yeah, under one that's of right. them. Yeah, pretty much. There's nothing, yeah. Nothing beyond that, really. Great. 
so we're going to cover Ecclesiastes over nine weeks. We'll do it the same as we've we've done previously with the um, the study guides coming out every week on the Thursday. You can pick them up from the same link. That, or the excuse me, the link that went out today is the link to that folder, um, which will have all of it in it, uh, all the, the studies in each week. Um, each sermon, as I said, we're going to cover. How, why pursuing life for its own sake lacks meaning, uh, looking at Ecclesiastes and looking at those different themes. Um, we're going to look at how life under a creator you know, changes that sense of meaning and then how the gospel fulfills our longing for meaning. So that I'm hoping that each sermon kind of fits that framework more or less. So it does take us from pursuing meaning in worldly things to pursuing meaning in Christ, um, essentially. That's kind of where we're going. Um, any final questions that anyone's got as we kind of go from here and head into preparing and teaching our groups. I just recommend um, obviously reading the passage, but also watching the Bible Project series on um, Ecclesiastes, uh, Job and Proverbs. Like if you're a visual learner like me, it's very helpful to understand it visually and when you're explaining it to whether it's other people or kids or youth it just yeah it's a it is a bit of a complicated confusing book so i found it helpful i've watched that a couple of times mm. in the past so yeah recommend that yeah thanks mate bible project stuff is really good yeah mm. oh cliff lenore yes. apologize for not being able to get on tonight as oh that's well. okay no problem at all yeah I'm sorry about being late. Um, I got a phone call from my son who only calls up every six months or something, and I got really excited and forgot about yeah. it. So, uh, that's why I was late. Oh, no, no problem. Good on you. Um, I highly recommend, if you've got the, the sheet, that interview with Harry Reader on Teaching Ecclesiastes. It's, a, it's about an hour, uh, 48 minutes. Um, it's really worth listening to. He's an American Presbyterian minister. Um, and he interviews with Nancy Guthrie about how to teach Ecclesiastes. And he's got some great, great Southern phrasing. Um, like, uh, I'll never forget now listening to, after listening to the difference between crockpot sanctification and microwave sanctification. Um, you can work those out, which is which. Um, but it's, it's a really, really good interview by someone who's got under the skin of the book and, you know, has, has, has some that's lived experience. Harry well. Reader one, did you say? Yes, Harry Reader. That's right. That's oh, right. yes. Yeah. And then I, I know these aren't on here, but I'll try and shoot them around, is the talks, I think, Gene, you've, li- you've been listening to them, the Jenny Salt ones. Mm, they're really good. Yeah. So Jenny Salt, who's um, connected to Moore College in Sydney, she did a series of talks for a women's conference in the UK in 2018. On Ecclesiastes, which are also really, really good. So I'll try and make those available. They're videos. Great. Well, friends, please, if you've got any questions as we get into the study series, please feel free to give me a shout. Um, I'm sure we're going to be learning together as we get into this. Um, also, please remember the leaders' training sessions on the three weeks from the 8th, the 8th to the 22nd of May. Um, that's 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. We're going to be going through the, the small group and the Vine studies. Um, and please also think about if you're leading a group, if there are people in your group who you think, this applies more to the community group leaders, um, if there are people in your group you think should be there who show potential 
as future leaders that their you know their character and their convictions and their competency demonstrates the ability to lead a group in the future um, perhaps think about bringing them along to that as well if you don't have a green book um, please let me know as well so i can order a green book for you for those sessions but look forward to that uh, and then also remember Sunday, we've got our ministry leadership team brunch, which is for um, community group leaders and ministry coordinators. So the youth leaders, you don't have to worry about that one. Um, but I hope to see you guys there. And Ben is going to be bringing a Bible talk uh, at that one for us as well. Um, so please bring something brunchy to share and we'll enjoy talking about um, how our ministries are going and any questions or things that we want to talk about, we can do that as well. So are you, are you wanting the youth team there on Sunday? No, 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 just um, Grace Community Group leaders and then ministry coordinators and leaders. So Luke and Marion will be there. Yeah, cool. Okay. That's good. Great. And we've recorded this, so we'll make it available. Um, It'll be available on the podcast feed and I'll shoot the link around as well so those who weren't here can can pick up what we've been speaking about. Thanks so much, guys. Could I pray for us and then um, send everyone on, on their way? Great. Father, we thank you so much that you do give us wisdom to live the best life under you in your world as we wait for Jesus to return. Father, I pray that as we um, get into this series of studies in Ecclesiastes this term, that we might be able to approach life with real wisdom, um, to live in the fear of you, and to understand the wisdom of the gospel. And Father, I pray that you will help us to turn away from meaningless pursuits uh, and to see what you've given us in the world in the right way, to enjoy it as a gift from your hand, but to find our meaning and our purpose in you, in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Great. Thanks very much, everyone. Appreciate you being here tonight. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Thanks. Thanks, Bye.